Welcome to Onco Pharma. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, ETSU's Bill Gatt College of Pharmacy. Uh, I have one of the most fascinating studies I've read in a long time. Really excited to talk about uh, this uh, kind of a proof of concept um, hypothesis or theory generating uh, study. And then a, and then a couple uh, maybe... Um, uh, kind of what we're used to uh, in run-of-the-mill updates that come out so frequently in this space. So I want to first talk about uh, this fascinating study published in Lancet Hematology um, uh, this uh, this week, I think. I, I, this came across my desk this week. So, and this is by some, uh, some researchers in Germany, and this is looking at uh, KIR2DS1, which sounds like uh, like a bot in Star Wars. KIR2SDD1 dash HLAC status uh, as a predictive marker for benefit from rituximab, uh, a post hoc analysis of the recover, recover but with an I, uh, 60 and CLL8 study. So so what is this KIR business? So this is killer, natural killer cell or stimulatory killer cell immunoglobulin-like receptors. And these KIRs bind to MHC1, which is expressed on all uh, cells in our body that have a nucleus. So when a natural killer cell and this KIR ligand or KIR uh, protein or receptor binds to MHC1, it uh, prevents the natural killing cell from doing what it naturally would want to do, which is kill that cell. And this is a way that promotes natural killer cell tolerance and helps prevent those natural killer cells from actually killing self, right? So, so they're not so natural. They just do so in a different way than, say, CD8 positive or cytotoxic T cells, right? So... Um, there is some preclinical evidence here in, in, in the lab and maybe some, with some serum from patients who had received rituximab that if you have certain mutations, certain genes in KIR, so KR2DS1 is the gene, about 15 genes that encode for these KIR receptors, um, and HLAC. Uh, there are two genes for HLAC, uh, HLAC1 and HLC2. Uh, and it looks like if you have HLC2 and this combination of KIR2DS1, that these natural killer cells get pretty lazy. Um, and and um, one of the ways that rituximab is, is theorized to, to work, there are a couple proposals. One is, obviously we know rituximab binds to CD20, and maybe that by itself causes inhibiting B-cell signaling apoptosis. That's been suggested. Uh, maybe macrophages can bind to the FC receptor on rituximab bound to CD20 and, and chew up these, these lymphoma cells. Uh, or maybe uh, complement binds to the FC receptor and you get the membrane attack complex formed after the complement cascade. But one of the leading theories is we have antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity where uh, a CD8-positive T cell, a cytotoxic T cell, or a natural killer cell binds to the FC receptor of rituximab bound to CD20 leading to lysis of the cells. And we would expect there to be lysis when we, we see that the big infusion reactions we worry about happen with the largest tumor burden in the first cycle of rituximab. All right, so this is, um, so that's the really exciting thing here and also humbling is that we're looking at, after more than a decade on the market, really looking at maybe why rituximab might not work in some folks. But caveats, this is a uh, looking at, um, Looking back at patients enrolled in the Recover 60 study, which is all mostly all Germans, uh, and, and those people were enrolled from 2000 to 2005, so a long time ago, 20 years ago in some instances, and of the patients in that study, they had you know 
um, basically cells available to do a genomic analysis in less than 50%, okay? So there are a couple caveats. One, it's retrospective. Two, it's retrospective of old tissue. Um, and it's, uh, you know, only a German patient population, okay? Uh, they, I won't go into the CLL8 trial, but they did the same thing in a CLL population. We'll focus on the, the large cell lymphomas. Mostly these were diffuse uh, uh, DLBCLs, okay? Uh, and these folks in, in Recover60 were randomized to CHOP or RCHOP. This was one of the studies, many that, that, that helped establish how beneficial rituximab is. So what they're doing is going back and they're asking the question, you know, based on what has been seen in the lab, if you have this combination, um, they actually find the combination, I guess, confirm that here. But if you had KIR2DS1 uh, or HLAC2, we think you won't do as well with, with rituximab. And what they found is that if you had both uh, the gene for KIR2DS1 uh, and if you were homozygous for HLAC2, um, you would uh, essentially not benefit from rituximab. Now, so you have to have, it looks like, you have to have uh, the gene in the natural killer cell, that KIR, uh, you know, killer cell immune uh, ligand receptor, uh, you have to have that 2DS1 gene. And then you have to have both copies from your parents of HLAC2. And if you have those, uh, when you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, when you get rituximab, if you have that genotype, your overall survival curve looks just like those folks that got CHOP, suggesting rituximab was of no benefit in those folks. Okay, which suggests that the primary mechanism of rituximab would be natural killer cell-mediated antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity, okay? which is really exciting all right? because it brings up a whole bunch of questions. Uh, you know, first, this is only German patients. It's a subset of an old study. Um, only about 15% of the population there had this genotype, so this is not going to be everybody, okay? But in, let's say that this, um, you know, that this was generalizable to the, <clears throat> the entire Western European and North American patient population. One, that leaves out a whole bunch of patients, right? Um, two, we don't know that we're going to test for this yet. This is hypothesis or maybe theory generating. It has to be confirmed. But it does raise an interesting question is, does the same hold true for ofatumumab or obinutuzumab? Is something different maybe with other CD20 monoclonal antibodies? Or could you modify you know, um, uh, this in some way. Now, maybe not. The problem seems to be with the natural killer cell, not so much with the binding uh, to CD20. But I think this is really, really fascinating um, to, to to shed some light on, on uh, you know, rituximab's mechanism uh, kind of in a, in a real way, and then also, um, uh, and then also, you know, maybe helps us predict who is not going to benefit from rituximab, and, and maybe that saves them money, or ideally we can figure out alternative treatments that are better and it can make up that lack of benefit from rituximab. But this is hypothesis generating. It's very sciencey, um, but I just found it fascinating and, and kind of got really excited. The copy of this, it's there's so many highlights here, um, and it, you know, if you want to, if you want to knock yourself out, I actually. I googled KIR2DS1 rituximab, only two hits, this study and the, and the, uh, the lab study uh, that they reference. You do KRS2D1 with obinutuzumab or ofatumab, no hits, okay? So really, really uh, early spaces here uh, in, this, uh, in this research. Uh, interestingly, uh, 10 years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was an article looking at um, HLAC-dependent prevention of leukemia relapse by donor-activating kir 
to DS1. So 10 years ago, we knew if you had AML and you got a bone marrow transplant, an allo transplant, that if the donor gave you natural killer cells with KIR2DS1, you had a higher risk of relapse from AML. Again, suggesting those natural killer cells that have KIR2DS1 are lazy. They're, they're, they're too easy, they're too tolerant of things they should not be tolerant of, whether they're leukemia uh, or, or these lymphoma cells. And again, we don't know if this would translate to, say, a CD20 ALL patient population, but certainly lots of exciting research I would expect to come uh, after this. Uh, really interesting. Love it. Love it. All right. Uh, the next, uh, the next kind of this is these are now more run-of-the-bill updates that are, are more actionable in practice and therefore should be more exciting, uh, I suppose. So uh, we have an update uh, in this week's issue of the New England Journal of Medicine from Keynote 522. This is uh, pembrolizumab, uh, neoadjuvant combined with chemo followed by adjuvant pembrolizumab compared to no pembro in the same chemo. Uh, in triple negative breast cancer patients, stage two or stage three. This was published two years ago uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was FDA approved in July of last year based on this study. And in the update to the PI, we, we saw the updated event-free survival. Here we get to see um, some of the subgroup analyses here. And I think, you know, when, when you read through this, to me, um, one, there's, there's a striking um, efficacy signal in the Asian subgroup analysis uh, there's still benefit in the rest of the world or the, the European, uh, Israeli, North American, American population, but these are the hazard ratios. So for Europe, Israel, North America, America, 0.69. In the Asian subgroup, it's 0.35, much greater benefit relative to no Pembro in the Asian subgroup uh, and in the rest of the world, 0.81. That's for event-free survival, okay? Um, um, you know... It, Interesting here, all right? So the, the delta here is about 7% in event-free survival, which is notable. What I found most interesting, and this is the first time that I've seen this because it's not in the PI, is in supplement uh, image four, figure four S1, in the supplement, they actually break out the event-free survival ratios, uh, whether or not you had a, a, a pathologic complete response or not. Uh, now, from a, a background standpoint, before this was published, um, uh, you can go back and look at the CREATE-X study, which was looking at adjuvant capecitabine in women who received neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, who did not have a pathologic complete response rate. Most of those folks, many of them were triple negative breast cancer. And what we saw from that study, especially those who were triple negative breast cancer, if you didn't have a complete response to neoadjuvant chemo, did the surgery, pathology says no complete response, there was an overall survival benefit with capecitabine. Uh, now, that was published, like, right when this study started, so they don't have adjuvant capecitabine. Unfortunately, they didn't amend the protocol like, like they could have. But there was this, you know, if, if the cancer did not all go away with chemo, there's a good chance that there are, is micrometastatic disease that's still viable, and you need some adjuvant treatment, okay? So when you look at the PCR rates here, if you had a pathologic complete response rate, three years later, 36-month event-free survival rate, very similar between the Pembro arm and the adjuvant arm. 94.4% versus 92.5%. Hazard ratio is 0.73. Confidence interval, huge, 0.39 to 1.66. Okay, But suggesting uh, if there is benefit, it's a very small amount of benefit. Okay, This is a subgroup analysis. Okay, Probably still want to stick with the overall patient population analysis. However, if you look at those who did not have a pathologic complete response, um, the three-year event-free survival rate was 56.8% in those who had placebo, 
Okay, so stage two, stage three, triple negative breast cancer that are not getting adjuvant capecitabine despite not having a pathologic complete response. Kind of unethical treatment. 56.8% three-year uh, event-free survival. All right, so no distant recurrence, no death. Now, if they got adjuvant Pembro and neoadjuvant Pembro, that went to 67.4%. So that's a delta of more than 10%, which is... Uh, you know, a number needed tree of 10 is, is pretty robust and a pretty large effect size here. It begs the question then, uh, what if they had, if they get neoadjuvant Pembro and they still don't have a pathologic CR, is that number go up even higher if you added capecitabine along with it or capecitabine in place of this? Um, and, and what you might start to see is some mixing and matching of, of these sort of treatments. This is kind of what we do with, if you do a dose-dense AC followed by weekly paclitaxel. You're taking data from a Sperano study and from a Larry Norton study and kind of combining them into a regimen. That, that makes a lot of sense here. So, you know, I don't know what to do uh, necessarily with this. I, I, um, you know, certainly if you don't have a pathologic complete response and you did new adjuvant Pembro, there's benefit to adjuvant Pembro. There's benefit to probably adjuvant capecitabine. Which one is better, we don't know. But it is reassuring. Let's say you have somebody who's getting new adjuvant Pembrolizumab and they have a grade four pneumonitis, and you're like, I don't want to re-challenge them with Pembro. Uh, well, then you've got adjuvant capecitabine in your back pocket. Unless you have somebody without a pathologic complete response. And, um, you know, if, if an insurer saw all this data and they say, hey, there's no proven benefit in the people that had a PCR, you know, we're not going to pay for Pembro. I could certainly see insurers thinking that way. We'll see what smarter folks think after they analyze this data, but that's my first uh, my first reaction after after reviewing this study, uh, it is nice to see this data, uh, and thankful they did they did report this. And I'll also do a caveat here: is you know, when I when I go over these studies, we often talk about post protocol therapy is important here uh, when determining overall survival. Well, these are these are women in a curative setting, and they had you know all of the visible tumor uh, removed, so they would not necessarily be getting post protocol therapy. Um, especially in an event-free survival. As soon as the disease comes back, they get an event. What they get after that would affect overall survival. Uh, those results still waiting for, for longer follow-up to see, to see that for, uh, for Keynote 522. Um, okay, so sticking with the, with the breast cancer patient population here, um, several years ago, you know, when I was in school, you, if you were, were premenopausal, you got tamoxifen, postmenopausal, we, we learned AIs were better than tamoxifen. But in the last decade, really, there has been a lot of investigation of, of using um, ovarian suppression in premenopausal women and using that to allow an aromatase inhibitor to be used in the premenopausal. You can't use an aromatase inhibitor as monotherapy in premenopausal women unless you silence those ovaries, take them out, zamp them with radiation, or give them a luprolide, a gosrelin, a triptorelin, an LHRH analog. So the soft and the text and several other studies looked at premenopause women with ovarian suppression uh, with either tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitor compared to just tamoxifen. And what those studies showed was eh, there was better disease control, right? less recurrence if you gave them more intensive therapy, uh, along with you know increased uh, loss of bone marrow density and fractures if you did the AI in these premenopause women. Did it did it make a difference in the long run? We don't know. So. Now we have some better idea, did it make a difference in the long run with regards to overall survival? So in Lancet Oncology this week, we have the Early Breast Cancer Trialist Collaborative Group, which have published a lot of meta-analyses, and we get a lot of our, 
our, our guidance uh, on what to do from this group. So this is a meta-analysis of several studies, 700, sorry, 7,000 women, including the soft and tech studies. And they have a, a median follow-up here of eight years for overall survival. Uh, you know, the overall survival rate at 10 years, whether you got ovarian suppression plus AI or tamoxifen, 8.2%, 8%, not statistically significant. So no difference in overall survival, okay? Now, as the authors state, they did look at uh, a distant recurrence, because if a breast cancer comes back distantly, we consider it incurable. And if you're premenopausal, you know, you still have a lot of, a lot of years left uh, in your life, so that is probably a reasonable uh, goal of therapy. Uh, there was a statistically significant improvement in distant recurrent uh, survival, the 10-year distant recurrence rate was 12% uh, with tamoxifen versus 10.2% with AI. That's a delta of 1.9% absolute risk reduction. So modest benefit, but but certainly still benefit. You know, talking a number to treat about 50 for a relatively common disease. Uh, no difference in breast cancer-specific mortality, uh, which will probably take another five to 10 years to see. Um, if you, if you operate under what we see often with hormone-positive breast cancer, recurs in the bones, uh, and it is a, a, a chronic disease in the bones, and certainly with our cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors, uh, we're able to do pretty well at, at keeping that at bay uh, until the, the, the disease becomes resistant to our treatments, and ultimately women succumb uh, to breast cancer. Now, there is a, an increased risk of fractures in these women who got the AI. That's an absolute difference of only 0.2%. Um, now, these are on study, so they're probably some, I didn't look at the, the strict methods, but they, I would hope they have some strict criteria, uh, at least looking for, uh, for DEXA scans and put these women on bisphosphonates. And some of these women actually got adjuvant bisphosphonates. So that was a subgroup analysis. Uh, didn't really make a, a huge difference in, in the, uh, the outcomes here. So, uh, that's, I think that, that may, that may settle uh, the benefit there. Maybe the very high-risk patients that are premenopausal, you do the ovarian suppression plus, um, plus the AI if they're willing to tolerate the, that loss in bone marrow density and you feel confident in your ability to use a bisphosphonate adenosumab to mitigate that, that, uh, that loss of bone marrow density. Okay, last study to talk about, also published in, uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, is survival with semiplamab in recurrent uh, cervical cancer. So this was... Um, for a randomized controlled uh, phase three study, kind of small, 600 patients, although, you know, in, in developed countries with high rates of cervical cancer screening, the number of women with metastatic cervical cancer should be low. Um, so this is uh, 600 patients, and they're getting uh, semiplamab, and this is after recurrence, after one line of, of treatment uh, in the metastatic setting. And in fact, most of them had already received paclitaxel, in fact, they, they maybe had a cisplatin-based regimen uh, if they were di metastatic at diagnosis or certainly in uh, the curative phase with radiation, and then maybe carbapaclitaxel, plus or minus bevacizumab, half it had bev. So, you know, heavily pretreated patient population, and they're randomized to either semiplamab, which is a PD-1 targeting monoclonal antibody, uh, or chemotherapy. Physician's choice chemo, most of them were actually pemetrexid, which I did not know was a drug that could be used in cervical cancer, uh, or gemcitabine. And if you go and look at the, the guidelines, there's just a laundry list of drugs to try, um, you know, if, if they, you know, after your first line treatment in the metastatic setting for cervical cancer, there's, there, you know, unless they're MSI high, or mismatch repair, repair deficient, in which case we know PD, uh, PD-1 inhibitors are effective. Now, they didn't test for that in these folks. So some of these women uh, maybe missed out on that chance uh, of getting a, a pembrolizumab because that wasn't something uh, that was standard of care at the time when this was done. 
Um, but there is, you know, an overall survival benefit seen in the entire patient population. Here's the problem. Um, if you're doing a study that of a drug that works on PD-1, seems like you should investigate the PD-1 uh, on everybody. And they, they only analyze PD-L1 positivity in, uh, in less than half of the patients. I'm sorry, 254 of the 608 patients, they actually assessed uh, PD-L1 expression uh, at baseline. Um, and, and of those, so of that, you know, that 40% or so of patients who you could test for PD-L1, in that patient population, um, you know, it did not appear that semiplomat benefited women any more than chemo in those who had, um, who had low PD-L1 expression. It seemed to do as good, so it, it might be less toxic than chemo, but certainly would be reassured to see, to see more data there uh, on that. But uh, in any event, this will probably establish semiplomab as the as the drug to go to in these women uh, who um, well take that back because now up front we're going to be using pembrolizumab with our cisplatin-based chemo or platinum-based chemo in these folks in the metastatic setting based on recent evidence. So um, you know semiplomab time and time again, or maybe just yeah time and time again is kind of like that kid in, in in middle school who says that clever thing. Uh, right after somebody else said the exact same clever thing, they're kind of second to the punchline, it seems, over and over again. All right, well, that's what I have this week. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter at PharmDeetNip, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.